Welcome back to Chasing Dramas. This is the podcast that discusses Chinese culture and history through historical Chinese dramas. We are your hosts, Karen and Kathy. Today, we are beginning our discussion of the Tang Dynasty drama, The Longest Day in Chang'an, or in Mandarin, Chang'an Shi Chen. Listen to our last week's episode for a preview of this drama, the characters, and history for this drama. For this podcast episode, we are actually going to cover the first half of episode one because honestly, it is so dense with information that will be useful for you to actually make sense of the drama as a whole. And in a deviation of our normal podcast format for these types of episodes, we will actually also discuss the history as we watch the drama in this podcast episode because there's so much to introduce with regards to the characters, the plot, and most importantly, the setting. And we wanted to make this episode, this podcast episode at least, a little bit more fluid rather than trying to cut back and forth with a plot recap and then history at the end. We wanted to make sure you listeners are all comfortable with where we are in the world and the time period because we will absolutely be engrossed in the splendor of the Tang Dynasty. For this episode, we will also be sprinkling in book differences and comments from the author to round out this discussion. If you have any comments or questions about what you heard today, please feel free to reach out to us on Instagram and Twitter, or else email us at Kathy at chasingdramas.com. We will be posting these episode transcripts on our website as well at chasingdramas.com. As always, this podcast is in English with proper nouns and certain phrases spoken in Mandarin Chinese. Additionally, we reference translations from what is provided on YouTube. We're watching this on YouTube in the States and we'll also provide some of our own. And now on to the episode. Episode one opens up with a magnificent continuous shot of a morning in Chang'an. Today is the Lantern Festival on Tianbao Sanzai, the third year of this era under the reign of Emperor Tang Xuanzong. The year is 744 AD, and the Lantern Festival celebrates the 15th day of the first month of the lunar year with the celebration of the full moon. This date can be sometime in February or early March on the Gregorian calendar. So not deep winter, but still pretty cold. The Lantern Festival itself during the Tang Dynasty started on the 14th and lasted for three days through the 16th. So we will talk a little bit about this, but the start of our drama is on the 14th. We start with a view of a young woman playing a Tang Dynasty style pipa, which is an instrument, on the upper floors of a building. Then pan our view out onto the street as we hear the beautiful sounds of the pipa continue and song wafting through in the background. On the street, we see merchants and workers already starting their day. Lanterns are being strung up in preparation for the Lantern Festival, and a large one is caught on fire before being quickly put out 
by some quick thinking workers with buckets of water. We then follow an elderly official carrying two banners as he scans his surroundings. There are children playing in the streets, foreign merchants talking in whispers before unveiling his goods, a stack of walnut naan ready to be sold for the day while another man is being dragged forcefully back into a shop he was trying to escape. By now, the elderly official has reached the district gate or the Fong gate in this instance, and hands off the banners to another official. A higher status official holding an official proclamation was waiting for him. After this exchange, we observe soldiers preparing to open the gate doors as this official with the proclamation heads upstairs. Drums start beating as the official loudly announces to the waiting crowd on the other side of the gate that on this day of the Lantern Festival, the 14th day of the first month, the Western Market, or Xi Shi, is now open. Kai Shi is what he proclaims, which means the market is now open. He continues that as decreed by the emperor, the evening curfew for this day will be suspended and activity will be allowed to continue for the next 24 hours until the next morning. All who entered into the city of Chang'an this day will be able to freely walk through the entire city regardless of where you came from. Tears erupt in the waiting crowd as we pan over to see the hordes of people eagerly waiting to start the trading day. They pack up their materials, load up their wagons, horses, and camels, eager to enter this Xi Shi, or Western market. We are 2 minutes 33 seconds into this drama in episode 1, and we need to take a pause. Let me first marvel at this beautiful singular opening shot from where the drama began, with the woman playing the pipa, all the way to the official announcing this proclamation, on the gate walls. The choreography it took for everything to fall into place as the camera changes its target to bring us to the gate took my breath away and is an introduction to just how intricate this drama is going to be. In this one shot alone, we see actors and actresses we may never see on screen again, but they played their part perfectly. And I love how full of life Xixi already is, even before the gates open, and especially on the other side, just how many merchants and traders are excited to enter into Xixi. I cannot wait to see it bustling in all of its glory. We now cut to the title screen, which depicts time. There's a couple of things we need to explain right off the bat, and it really relates to that title screen. Let's first start with time in ancient China, because for each episode, and indeed every chapter of the book, we will get a timestamp of where we are in the day. In episode one, we start the day on the 14th of the Lantern Festival at the time of Si Zhang, Da Huang Luo. In the YouTube translation, they have it at around 9 a.m. However, in the book, the author has it at around 10 a.m. During the Tang Dynasty, there were 12 Shi, 
or dual hours in the day, starting at 11 p.m. with two-hour increments to make a shi. In the latter part of the Tang Dynasty, the dual hours were further divided so that the first hour was chu and the second hour was zheng, which is what we see in the drama. Days are also divided into smaller units called ke, with each ke roughly equating to around 15 minutes. It's a little bit shorter than that, but let's just think through and say, okay, it's 15 minutes. We start the drama at si zheng. Si shi is the dual hour between 9 and 11 a.m. Si zheng, which is the second half of this dual hour, means that the time is 10 a.m. And again, the reason why we're saying dual hour, we just have to really kind of take away from our 24-hour day thinking. And in China, it really was 12 hours and that was it. So that is how we counted time in ancient China. The phrase of si zheng, da huang luo, wan wu, chi sheng da chu, huo ran er luo, gu yun huang luo. This is a long phrase, and this is spoken by a gentleman later in the drama, or this episode, but let's discuss the full phrase now. The translation is si zheng, the time of great waste. The world is at its most prosperous, but will soon fall. Hence, the time of great waste. This phrase comes from the first surviving Chinese dictionary, Er Ya, that was most likely written between the 4th and the 2nd century BC. The phrase comes specifically from the chapter Shi Tian, Explaining Heaven, focusing on astronomy and astrology and specific ways to calculate time. In Chinese culture, Da Huang Luo, or the Great Waste, represented the growth of all things nearing its peak. The reason the author chose this time of day, especially with the Great Waste, was twofold. Yes, this is when the markets opened, and also when people were, I would say, the most productive. But also, this was a commentary on the Tang Dynasty in general. In this year, the emperor Xuanzong, who had been fastidious and focused on governing, and had built or grew or grown the Tang Dynasty to its glory that we see today, will begin to turn towards the more earthly pleasures. We talked about the specific year of 744 in the previous episode, but this year of 744 really sparked the decline of the Tang Dynasty as we know it. After we discuss time, let's chat about the layout of Chang'an. This will be vitally important to understand the drama and will come up very quickly later on in the drama, but we should level set right here and now so we actually get an understanding of what's going on. Chang'an during the Tang Dynasty was a massive city, one of the, if not the biggest in the world at that time. It was designed to be in a rectangular shape of approximately 84 square kilometers or approximately 32 square miles. The city measured 9,721 meters from east to west or around 6 miles and 8,651 meters from north to south 
or around 5.3 miles. Within Chang'an's walls, the city is broken into different rectangular fang. From YouTube, a lot of the translations say street, but that's not quite accurate. You could consider them almost large city blocks or small rectangular gated communities, maybe not small. Since these fang aren't all shaped like squares, I don't know if calling them a square is correct because that's what Google Translate tells me. Each fang had their own gates or doors, walls, and generally their own specific purpose. In Chang'an, and it is stated in the book and also in the drama, there are 108 of these fang. For the purposes of this drama, I'm actually going to just keep calling it fang or F-A-N-G with a third accent, meaning y'all can learn some Chinese with us because I don't think calling it street or district or square is necessarily correct. Maybe ward, but if we're going to just call it one word, fang, I think is probably easy enough for us to all understand what I'm trying to say. With that background, let's talk about why this proclamation from the emperor is important. From the behind the scenes clip from the author of the book, Ma Yong, he shared that back then, the way for guards and soldiers to keep order was to try to restrict movement, especially at night. There was a nightly curfew during the Tang Dynasty as a way to prevent crime. If you were doing business in one fang and needed to head home, there were drumbeats that would warn you it was time to go home to your own fang. If you were out after curfew, there would be punishment. If you couldn't make it back to your own fang in time, you would just head over to the nearest fang and stay there overnight because each fang would have their own hotels, restaurants, what have you. Once curfew was lifted the next day, you can head back home. But as Ma Boyong, the author explains, the curfew does not mean business completely shuts down. After curfew, the fang gate closes, but you can still go out and about and do business or hang out in your own little fang as you please. Party all night if you want to, but you cannot exit your fang, which is why we call it a little different from street because you're very much closed into your own little section of the city. And I don't like necessarily calling it a gated community because that implies like a suburban household area. No, these fang had businesses, houses, sure, but it was more of a thriving community than just a suburban housing area. This allowed the main streets in the city that divided these fang to stay empty and clear overnight. There were no markets on these main streets, only within the fang. Ma Boyong, the author, explains that the Lantern Festival, or Shangyuanjie, was unique because it was the one time where the curfew would be lifted so that everyone in the city could enjoy the beautiful lanterns during nighttime, and essentially it was a time to party. People could roam around the different fang without restriction. In the behind-the-scenes clip, the author noted that the curfew would be lifted for three days. But in this drama, we only hear about the curfew being lifted for 24 hours. And last, P. 
piece of note here. The Western market or Xishi is a very large fang within Chang'an. We'll discuss the Western market in subsequent episodes, so we'll move on from here. With all of that background, let's head back to the drama. After the opening scenes, honestly, or credits, we are now in Guangdefang, home of the fictitious Jing'anzi, or the Department of City Security. If you look at a map of Chang'an, this fang is located one fang away to the east of Xishi, or the Western Market. A disheveled and unkempt man in chains is pulled from his cell and dragged unceremoniously out to a hallway where a female servant, Tan Qi, is waiting. She comments that he reeks, and next thing we know, he has thrown a few buckets of water somewhere to wash off. At least I feel like the water was warm, because I see heat coming from him. After this quick shower, this man, hunched over, clutching an oversized fabric around him, dragging his feet in chains, is escorted to another courtyard. This man in question is Zhang Xiaojing, former Bu Liang Shuai. The translation here gives me captain of the sleuth hound, but I'm not entirely sure that's correct. Bu Liang Shuai itself is an interesting title because in Chinese, the direct translation is captain of the not good person. Liang generally means good or goodwill, so Bu Liang would be the opposite. This is a government official title specific to the Tang Dynasty. The purpose of this role is to monitor those not good people. Their primary remit is to capture and prosecute thieves in order to help preserve security and peace. The rank of these Bu Liang Shuai isn't actually very high, but still incredibly useful. Zhang Xiaojing was the Bu Liang Shuai for Wan Nian Xian, or county, which is the right half of Chang'an. This was actually really important for me because I was like, I don't know what Wan Nian Xian is and what it has to do with Chang'an. But if you consider Wan Nian as a borough, if we're thinking about New York City, such as Queens to New York City as a whole, or if we think about Washington, D.C., literally, one half of DC security and safety would fall under the purview of this Bu Liang Shuai as part of his county or district remit. In this instance, I'm just gonna use the captain of the sleuth hound as part of the translations from YouTube because I don't have a better translation and I'm not gonna say, yeah, I can do better. <laughs> the fact that Zhang Xiaojing had this title though means that he is rather impressive. Without watching any further, what this title of Bu Liang Shuai tells us is that Zhang Xiaojing will be a skilled fighter and be highly connected with the comings and goings of the city in order to be an effective leader. He has also been in that role for nine years. Tan Qi, the female servant or maid, announces that Zhang Xiaojing has arrived. Zhang Xiaojing seems to have suspected that they wanted something from him because he very plainly states, as he sits himself down on the ground, that he is not the person they're looking for. He committed one of the worst offenses possible and has been sentenced to death by beheading. A voice of a young man travels through, promptly cutting off Zhang Xiaojing, 
stating that he can get Zhang Xiaojing pardoned. Zhang Xiaojing scoffs at this, turns to where the voice came from, and inquires whether or not the owner of the voice has the last name of Li Yi. Pan Xi quickly apologizes to the voice, saying that no one ever mentioned the identity of her master. But Zhang Xiaojing then impresses all of us with his deduction skills and intimate knowledge of Chang'an by directly placing exactly where this place is. A location that has been abandoned for quite some time and rumored to be the secret property of the crown prince. So what Zhang Xiaojing assumed about the young man is that he might be the crown prince himself. The young man swiftly opens the door to correct him. We are now introduced to the young Li Bi, the deputy chief of the Department of City Security, or Jing An Si. He makes it very clear that he is not from the royal family, but from the Li family of the Sui dynasty, which is the dynasty before the Tang dynasty. And I'll note that that was over, I would say, 100 plus years ago. Even that statement, though, however, is not quite true in history. Li Bi, or the original character or historical figure, is in fact the sixth generation descendant of a man called Li Bi. While they all sound the same, but the characters in Chinese are very different. Li Bi was a crucial general for the kingdom of northern Zhou during the early 6th century. His descendants were not very cozy with the empress of the Sui dynasty and somewhat ostracized at court. There's actually another Li family that can claim that they're the Li family of the Sui dynasty. Anyways, all that to say is, yes, this guy, Li Bi, nevertheless comes from a very prestigious family, but he is not royal. To be fair, it is a common mistake because most people probably think, oh, your last name is Li, which is the royal last name, then probably you're royal, which is why this young man, Li Bi, was very quick to say, no, I am not part of the royal family. I'm of another Li family. Li Bi then goes on with his resume, which is actually very impressive. But for our purposes, the most important fact we will pick out for right now is that he studied Taoism for over 10 years under the master Ye Fashan. We'll discuss all about the other areas of his resume later on. Li Bi stands out amongst the crowd from head to toe because Li Bi's entire attire is Taoist. This includes his jade lotus head crown in which the hairpin actually points forward when normally we would assume that it should be horizontal. And as a member of court, he is actually allowed to wear this jade head crown, but also practitioners of Taoism could also wear these types of head crowns. In his hands, he is holding a hosu or a fly whisk which is a very customary thing for Taoists. His robe is a he chang, or in English, a crane robe, which was also a Han robe that had associations with Taoists. On the inside, he's wearing what can be literally translated to Taoist dress. Please keep
keep his entire getup in mind because we'll spend time discussing the clothing of other people. But Li Bi is very unique in this regard. This young Li Bi is the head of Jing An Si, a new yamen, or you could consider a government entity that was created just four months ago at this location. Li Bi calmly states that he has the authority and ability to pardon Zhang Xiaojing, so he walks freely starting tomorrow. But today, he has to do a task. Zhang Xiaojing asks if it is the same task that another man, Cui Liulang, was tasked to do. And if he's on the job, why do they need Zhang Xiaojing? Li Bi simply answers, he's dead. With that, the whole group heads to the coroner's, where we see Cui Qi, the captain of the Lu Benjun, mourning over the death of someone. Well, that someone just happens to be the body we see on screen and is the aforementioned Cui Liulang. Lu Benjun in the YouTube translation is the royal escort, but it really isn't. We'll still use the royal escort, though, to keep it consistent. In history, this guard was called Hu Benjun, or the Tiger Guard, which functioned basically as an elite force, dating back to even the Han Dynasty, or the 2nd century um, BCE. During the Tang Dynasty, this troop was smaller and just part of the Crown Prince's personal guard, so distinct from just a broad royal escort. Anyways, Cui Qi is clearly distressed over the deceased man, putting a non in his helmet awaiting punishment from Li Bi, as he claims he was the reason this mission failed and Cui Liulang died. Li Bi dismisses him and asks him to change out of his wet clothes so that Zhang Xiaojing can examine the body. Once again, Zhang Xiaojing is able to acutely deduce that Cui Liulang is Cui Qi's older brother. Li Bi here gives Zhang Xiaojing an ultimatum. If the man can accomplish his mission, then he will be spared the death penalty. If not, back to the gallows he goes. At this point, Zhang Xiaojing is like, what is my mission? Uh, excuse me. But he goes to hear the forensic report and asks to hear exactly what he has to do. Li Bi turns around and marches Zhang Xiaojing to Jing Ansi, or the Department of City Security, and we are introduced to the grandeur that is this whole department. I know on YouTube it says Peacekeeper Corps, but I like the Department of City Security a little bit better, so we're going to keep that. This is a new secret agency with the edict to maintain the peace and security of the capital. This department holds all the secret documents of all the other bureaus and agencies in the empire. In another impressive shot, we follow the hustle and bustle of Jing Ansi in its normal operations. As we follow Li Bi, Zhang Xiaojing, and Tan Qi, we next meet Xu Bin, a member or a former member of the Ministry of Revenue and also the inventor of Da An Du Shu, which is a fictitious way to find data or information through scrolls. It was this Xu Bin that helped select Cui Liulang and Zhang Xiaojing for this task. Both of them know multiple languages, 
know how the officials and thieves operate and are motivated, plus they want to live. Thus, these two were great candidates. Something that is important to note here is that Xu Bin states that he and Zhang Xiaojing have never met. Xu Bin also is of a government position where he is only of the eighth rank, a rather lowly rank, if you will. But Li Bi says Xu Bin prefers to be here in order to continue to do what he does. We next get a fabulous explanation of the operations of Jing Anzi with its 35 members in charge of all of the secrets of the capital. Notably, Li Bi confidently says that he trusts all the members of Jing Anzi. We are then also introduced to another important character, the timekeeper, Professor Pang Ling. He will judiciously follow and announce the time. And he recites what we mentioned earlier about it right now, time, being Sijiang, or the time of great waste. Walking past Pang Ling, we follow Li Bi and Zhang Xiaojing into another room which houses detailed miniature replica models of the entire city of Chang'an. This is very impressive. Each fang has been intricately recreated so that Jing Anzi can observe activities happening in each of those fang. These models will certainly come into play later on in the drama, mainly so that we can see where Zhang Xiaojing is going. But what he questions is that having these models basically is a big security threat. Anyone wishing to do harm to Chang'an only need to get their hands on these replicas, and that would wreak absolute havoc on the city. Li Bi once again is confident in the safety and security of Jing Anzi, which will not allow these models to fall into the wrong hands. Additionally, Li Bi points out that Jing Anzi is in direct communication with all of the watchtowers in the city. There is a watchtower located every 300 steps and are manned with soldiers to inform Jing Anzi near real-time activities happening within every fang through runners as well as codes that can be transmitted through color codes in a panel box via the watchtowers. I would recommend very much watching this scene because these watchtowers seem so cool. These watchtowers inform of any movement in the city, and more importantly for Zhang Xiaojing. These watchtowers will either support him on his mission or else apprehend him if he tries to escape. In history, these watchtowers existed, but mainly for spotting and putting out fires. The method of communication that we see in the show was developed purely by the author. The author originally used a combination of drum beats and flags in the book, but that didn't really translate well into the drama. So the director changed it to what we have now, which is basically an ASCII like 12 bit code that we had runners and watchtowers use during the Tang Dynasty to transmit messages. Once again, when you see it, it's really cool, but keep in mind the watchtowers were real. The uh, whole secret code message transmitting was not real. <laughs> this was the scene where, I mean, honestly, earlier stuff, I didn't really pay too much close attention when I first watched this drama. But when these watchtowers were shown, I was like, dang, this is so cool. 
after I get over my awe of these watchtowers, Li Bi tells Zhang Xiaojing at long last what his mission is. In the ninth month of the prior year, an encrypted message was recovered detailing that a squad from the Turkish elite forces Lang Wei, or the Wolf Squad, including their leader Cao Poyan, mysteriously disappeared in the northwestern regions of the empire. I don't particularly know why the online translation calls it Wolven Squad. The direct translation literally is just Wolf Squad. So in this case, we're going to call it Wolf Squad. <laughs> I don't think you're going to miss anything if we call it that versus Wolven Squad. Jing Ansi was established to determine their whereabouts, and it was only a few days ago that the department discovered 16 people tried to purchase fake identities to enter into the city via the Western market. The original plan was to have Cui Liulang, an illegal loan shark, and the man who died lure the 16 men into an abandoned building, discover their plan, and promptly be executed by Cui Qi and the royal escort. Everything went according to plan until it didn't. We are treated next to a awesome flashback of this action-packed scene, and it is another marvelous one. The action is in one continuous shot, and this really shows how quickly everything went down where the royal guards stormed the hideout. The royal escort were able to kill 15 of the 16 members of the wolf squad, but their leader, Cao Poyan, managed to slip away in the drains that were illegally constructed by this shop. Unfortunately, it is impossible to know where Cao Poyan came ashore. And this scene, this fight scene was so cool, and you can see just how damaging the fight scene actually was, meaning like how harsh people were actually punching each other. So this, again, was another scene where I was very mightily impressed with the martial arts and fighting on screen, which has been sorely missed in historical dramas of late. We'll stop here with our recap in history. It's already a lot, and we're only like <laughs> barely 20 minutes into the episode. <laughs> Li Bi finally gives his mission. I feel like it's mission impossible here. <laughs> Zhang Xiaoxing's mission, should he choose to accept, is to capture this Cao Poyan. On a day such as the Lantern Festival, where the city's one million residents will be out and about, cells will be the only option, which is why they chose Zhang Xiaoxing. Otherwise, there may be unintended injuries and casualties. Zhang Xiaoxing doesn't really have an option to choose, so yeah, that's his mission. I think it didn't really, wasn't really Mission Impossible. I mean, I feel like this is an impossible mission, but they had to choose one man for the task, and it is now Zhang Xiaoxing's task. Before anyone can react, before even Zhang Xiaoxing can react to this mission, an elderly man riding a donkey arrives with an adult man in tow who seems intellectually stunted. The elderly man is utterly distraught and says the phrase Zhao Zhao Yotang Tian Bi Wang Guo before collapsing off of the donkey. We'll introduce the man in the next episode and the significance of his words. 
And that is it for our discussion of part one of episode one of The Longest Day in Chang'an. I know it is a lot of information, but we really needed to set the stage. And I actually had a blast going through in detail and sharing and typing up all this information and also sharing it with you guys. The music you heard for this episode is Qingping Yue, played by yours truly, with sheet music by Cui Jianghui. A friendly reminder that if you are looking for sites to watch Chinese dramas and you are in the U.S., please head on over to our sponsor, Zhubao TV. It is a free service that has a selection of Chinese dramas and movies to watch. They have launched on Sling TV for free, as well as Plex. You can access it on TV or else online. Thanks again so much for listening, and we will catch you all in the next podcast episode.